It just so happened to work out that although I did think that this would take uh, two Sundays, this actually will probably be finished today. This is the final uh, section of the Second London Confession, which deals with what, what we refer to as the last things. And last, the last two weeks, we discussed chapter 31 of the Second London, which deals with the, the state of man after death and the resurrection or something like that. It's titled something like that. And um, that, that is what some have referred to as uh, personal eschatology. It kind of focuses more on the personal Christian's experience of um, death, the intermediate state with Christ, and then meeting Christ at the last day, receiving a glorified body. And this chapter deals very specifically with Judgment Day, and it has more of a cosmic view, um, although the previous chapter does deal with very cosmic things as well. Um, but every paragraph in this chapter just about primarily or, or exclusively focuses on the Last Judgment. Um, paragraph 1 kind of focusing on the, the, the day itself and, and some details about the day and the fact that it is appointed. Uh, paragraph 2, dealing really with uh, the purposes of the day, the different reasons why this last judgment takes place, why this day exists in the, in the future. And I didn't title paragraph 3, uh, but paragraph 3, uh, you know, if I'm just coming up with something off the top of my head, I would say that it, it deals with... Um, how the day ought to change our hearts, thinking about this day, how it should sober us and, and change us, how it applies, kind of just applying it. So, as usual, I'm going to be reading the modern version. Okay, so here's the modern version, and we will take apart the older version. It says this, paragraph one, the divinely appointed day. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom... All power and judgment is given by the Father. In that day, um, the apostate angels will be judged. So also, all people who have lived on earth will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive a reckoning according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. And in this paragraph and the rest of the paragraphs in the chapter, it is an incredibly straightforward, fairly non-controversial. There's one little thing I want to clarify, but most of it is just language straight out of the Bible. It's just straightforward language. And, um, and it's important to note, I think, just and I forgot to say this for historical background, but the Second London's doctrine here, you, you notice that a lot of times the particular Baptists would change just ever so slightly the language, sometimes more significantly like in the doctrine of the church. It changed the language of the doctrine and uh, from the Westminster into the Savoy. But the, 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 the language here in the Second London, the Savoy, and the Westminster are all, all almost identical. Why would that be important to note that they're all almost identical language? This is something that 17th century reformers were just like, this is just what the Bible teaches. Why is that important? Uniformity you have against varying 
streams of thought, the more likely it is mm-hmm. that's what the Bible yeah. says. Yeah, the witness just gets a lot louder and stronger. The case is just made. I mean, this is just what Christians believe. Um, so th- this is this is orthodoxy. Okay. Um, so first, let's look at. Uh, the fact that the Bible teaches about a day of judgment. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures today, maybe a little bit more than usual, um, and, and meaning I'm not just going to read them to you. I want to look at some of these. I want to actually turn and look at some of these very closely because um, there's, there's power in seeing it on the pages of your Bible and reading these words and letting it affect your heart. So look with me at Acts chapter 17. And um, let's see whether or not the, the confession is true, to use its old language, uh, and hath appointed a day of judgment. Acts chapter 17. Can you need a Bible? Are you good? Okay. All right. So Acts chapter 17, verse 23. Um, let's read verse 22. I don't know why I said verse 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So the unknown God, you said you don't know who this unknown God is. I'm going to tell you who he is because all these other gods are false gods. This is the unknown God about what you speak. Almost a, a hint of humor there. Um, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us, for um, in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, so now he quotes their own secular literature, and he says, this, there's something true here in your own literature. He says, we are indeed his offspring. He's saying, that's it. I'll tell you who the he is. It's the triune God. We're his offspring. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, there's the language of our confession, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he's not speaking to Jews. He's speaking to non-Jewish people, Gentiles. And what he's saying is, um, I'm going to use the language of of, of One scholar, he put it this way, Lane Tipton. This is what you could refer to as a covenant lawsuit. Paul is is charging, based upon the covenant of works, these Gentiles with being guilty because they know this God and this God 
has sent surety into the world to all men that there, a, ju- a day of judgment is coming. How did he do that? He raised a man from the dead. And what that means is that the resurrection, to use other language from the New Testament, the resurrection is proof of the penalty of sin. Jesus dies and bleeds and then is raised from the dead. And the proof that that one will judge all men is that he himself underwent judgment. And so, if he doesn't pay the judgment, the, the penalty, you will and he's going to be the one to judge you. That's, that's kind of Paul's logic there. Um, now, I, I don't have much more to say on that, but I just wanted to show you say a couple of things about that passage and that it, that it is true what the confession says that God has appointed a day of judgment that Jesus Christ will run. Any, any thoughts or questions on that? And we'll move on to the next one. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. And uh, I remember a number of years ago listening to a John Piper sermon on this passage and uh, he was very serious he goes this text if I can remember I'm going to try to remember the quote correctly he goes this text is like a field full of landmines and uh, oil gutters or something like that he said something take one step and you're blowing the smithereens you take another step and you're rich um, let's see why he said that. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does not who does evil to the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first and also the Greek because verse 11 God shows no partiality he's he's not going to bend his standard of justice just ever so slightly for some so um, in, in this text he starts off this is kind of in what we would refer to as a chiasm A-B-B-A pattern he starts off with um, the reward that belongs to the righteous and then he explains the, the, the punishment that belongs to the wicked and then he states again the punishment that belongs to the wicked and then ends by stating again in different language the reward that belongs to the righteous um, th- this text and if you connect this text to the rest of the chapter uh, months and months ago I, I tried to show from this chapter that I, I tried to answer the question how is it I, I think Paul's logic here is that God will judge ev- he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek so he will judge not only the Jews but he will also judge the Gentiles so he will judge those who have the standard of the Ten Commandments, and then he will judge others who don't have that standard in written form. 
And then the question might arise, and I think that's what the apostle is dealing with, how is it fair that all men will be judged by this very same standard if some have it in written form and others don't have it in written form? And Paul goes on to explain why is this the case. And his argument is all men have it stamped upon their conscience. Some have it stamped upon their conscience because they are created in God's image and they have it in written form, which means judgment's worse for them. But all men will be judged by this very same standard because it's it's the standard of morality for all men. And so there's a general judgment. Um, and I would, I would say that this passage is teaching, is shedding light on what the day of judgment that Paul refers to in Acts 17 is. That's this is how Jesus is going to administer judgment. He's going to judge all men based upon natural law. Um, and so, so on the day that God judges in Christ all men, he's going to do it according to the standard of his very own character, because the, the because men are created in his image and so they know what's right and wrong so this is not an arbitrary standard of of justice this is a standard of justice that cannot be added to or taken away from it's a standard of justice that is unchanging it's a fixed bar and everyone will have to answer to it okay any questions on that passage And so I just want to say, before we move on to this next phrase, Jesus is given all power and judgment. Um, and that's exactly what Matthew 28 says, right? Before he goes, he's resurrected. This is the resurrected Lord. He's the king of the world. And he says, all authority has been given to me. Okay, all power and authority. And on this day, on this day of judgment, that will be when the authority, the authority that he has in heaven and earth will come to a consummation in some sense. He has authority in heaven and he has authority on earth and when heaven and earth meet on the day of judgment he will exercise all authority in dividing the sheep from the goats. Um, I don't know why it keeps doing that. Next, you have the subjects of this judgment who are going to be judged. And the subjects of this judgment will be what, what the confession says, apostate angels and all persons, every human being. And it's interesting that it says apostate angels. It doesn't say all angels. Why does it only point out apostate angels? And that means angels that have rebelled against God and are fallen, they're demons. They will be judged. But why not all angels? Not all angels fell. They've already been confirmed in their election, so there's nothing to judge. They're perfect um, in their own beings, according to their own natures. So, and this is worth thinking about. It, you know, this is what our confession cites. This is what the divines cited in the Westminster and here, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. If you ever wanted to know what this passage teaches, I'll just read it to you. It says, Know ye not that we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life according to the particular Baptists and the, and the post-reformed Puritans 
this verse taught, this is what the Reformed tradition has taught, that will be under Christ, but judging apostate angels somehow. How that actually works, we don't know. Um, but that sheds a little bit of light on what that verse could mean. Not judging righteous angels, but judging wicked angels. Um, and we'll do it with the Lord Jesus. And 2 Peter 4.2 um, also says, just to shed light on, on this idea of us judging apostate angels or apostate angels being judged, it says, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and he delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So, then it says all persons. Okay? And not only should this frighten all persons to some degree and still fear even in Christians to, to sober them up, we'll consider in a moment. Um, not frighten them because they're not sure if they're saved, but frighten them because, you know, the fear, we, we ought to have the fear of the Lord in our hearts. And, and to tremble at his majesty. But it should comfort us, it should comfort Christians for obvious reasons that wickedness will be done away with and that we will ultimately be vindicated. It also comforts, it should to some degree, even unbelievers. Why would I say that it should comfort everyone um, at some significant level that every evil act in history will be exposed and all persons will be judged. Why should that comfort everyone? He's a just God. He's a just God. Any other, anything else? I remember Ryan, maybe about a year ago, referring to I, I didn't hear it, but this sounds like something Tim Keller would say. He quoted Tim Keller, who is, I think, referring to a conversation that he had with an atheist um, about justice in the world. And he said, you know, but in your worldview, there's no, there's no hope that wickedness, even evil, hidden evil, secret evil, that never would be exposed. Great um, malicious forms of childhood abuse and... Um, you know, even great, like large scale acts of wickedness, um, sometimes that are never even found out. Um, you have no hope that any of those things, that justice will ever ultimately be done. But in the Christian worldview, there actually is hope that all wickedness will be exposed and, and dealt with and punished. Um, and so. It should, it should even comfort just at least psychologically, civilly, whatever word you want to use, unbelievers to know that there is ultimate justice in the world. You know, that, that, should, that should bring about some level of peace and hope. Like, this world is not just a bunch of molecules bumping around, but there's meaning. And I know that if I felt wronged, that's going to be dealt with. And atheists don't have that, and false religions don't have that. And so, uh, a little bit about the judgment itself. I'm going to rattle these verses off to you. 
it says that we'll be, everyone will be judged according to thoughts, words, words, and deeds, and that's kind of that's kind of a um, helpful accountability, I guess, to some degree for your prayers. Like we're confessing our sins, we're confessing sins of our thoughts, confessing sins that we did in, uh, with our words, and confessing sins that we um, acted and did. So first. Ecclesiastes 12 says, God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. Every secret thing. Every thought. This is what Jesus does on the Sermon on the Mount, right? He takes the Ten Commandments, which legalists see just as a cold letter, and they say, can I obey that letter? And they obey it, and then they check the box. But Jesus gets down into the heart and says, no, it doesn't just mean not to kill. What's really going on and what you need essentially in a courtroom to actually convict someone of manslaughter is an intention. And the seed form of murder, the sin of murder, is hatred. So even if you're not acting out that on that hatred, you have it in your heart in seed form. And that proves that your nature is wicked. And so, even when we have unfounded, non-justified, selfish, covetous, jealous anger, that will be exposed on the day of judgment. That will be revealed. Every thought, every secret thing. Idle word. Next, words. Matthew twelve thirty six. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So the words we speak, maybe maybe when we're going too far, complaining to someone, trying to get wisdom in a situation, and it just turns into slander, that will be revealed. When, when we... F- flash out on somebody, hulk out on somebody because we felt wronged and we didn't come at the situation in love and compassion and wisdom and discernment. We just lose our minds because we felt wrong. That will be revealed. Every evil deed will be revealed. Or evil word. Um, then our deeds. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things in his body done according to to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So, even the things that we do. And everybody knows that, but people, I think, tend to neglect the words they speak and the thoughts that they have. Any question on those verses? Or any thoughts or comments on that? And a question might come up. So, this includes Christians, or is this just that Christians kind of don't have to be judged, that Christ has already been judged, only the wicked are being judged, and we kind of watch it or whatever? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear. We must all appear. And he's, I mean, we means we. <laughs> so, 
And then furthermore, Romans 14.10 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then every one of us shall give an account um, of himself to God. Um, Again, sobering words. So... There will be some kind of awareness to to what extent, and if it takes place in the same way as it will with the wicked, you know, obviously the verdict will not be the same because we've been justified by faith, but there will be recognition of our sins, you know. And the question, how can I be right with God, forces us to ask the question, what am I going to say? So, Because to some degree, my sins will be known. Whether it's in the same way as the wicked, but to some degree, my sins will be known. They will be exposed. You know, Revelation 21, 4 says, we, our tears will be wiped away. Will be wiped away. Our tears will be wiped away. What are we crying for? You know, obviously suffering. Um... But the scriptures also testify to mourning over our sin. And Christ will wipe those tears away. And he is the lamb that was slain, right? For what? Our sins. So our sins will be known. We're not going to forget that we were sinners. So they will be exposed to some degree. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds, even as Christians, will be known. Um, well, what do you mean, what would we say to him? Yeah, I'm saying, what is the answer? Who pays for these sins? How? Because we won't say nothing. It'd be like a Job thing. Cover up. Uh, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, shaking in our boots. But my question is, how can you be right with God? He is love. So, this presses the idea of justification by faith alone. We might ask, well, what about the doctrine of justification by faith alone? What about the fact that in this life, when we put our faith in Jesus, all our sins are gone? never to be remembered again, up to the last breath, right before death, and we are perfectly right. Perfectly right. Because Jesus' righteousness. So what about that? If we're going to be, if we are declared perfectly righteous right now, as righteous as the human being, Jesus Christ, and then we stand before the judgment seat, and our sins are brought back up, how do those two things relate to one another? And I found, I'm almost certain this is Thomas Goodwin, Puritan, um, he made a distinction. It could have been someone else, though. So don't quote me on that. It could have been Herman Witsius. So it doesn't matter. One of the Puritans said it this way. We need to make a distinction between how a Christian um, can inherit a right to life, eternal life, how can a Christian receive the title? You know how you get to go get a title for your car? How does a Christian get a title of heaven, for heaven? That heaven is mine. Um, we need to make a distinction between that, the right to life, and the possession of life. So how does one 
receive the title to life? That is one question. But then a second question is how does one possess and actually experience the inheritance of life? And what role does works play into that? And we've looked closely at the doctrine of justification. And just by the way, let me just say very quickly what the doctrine of justification by faith is. This is the doctrine of justification by faith. The Holy Spirit gives you faith and unites you to Jesus Christ, faith alone. And when you are placed into union with Jesus Christ, you are united to Christ and his 33 years of perfectly obeying God's law. And your sins are taken away from you, up your, the sins of your entire life, and placed upon Jesus, and he pays for them all at the cross. And, he, and the proof that that's the case, the receipt, is that he was raised from the dead. So then you are united to Christ and his perfect life. When we have faith in Christ, then the verdict comes. God sees not your righteousness, but the righteousness of somebody else. That's Jesus. Because our righteousness doesn't justify us. It can't. It said that our righteousness in Isaiah is um, uh, uh, minstrel rags. You know, who's, it, no deed that we do is perfect. They're all covered with sins. The question is who's going to pay for those sins? And whose righteousness can I have that is perfect? Because mine isn't. Jesus pays the penalty for those sins. And it is his righteousness that is imputed to us. The, the verdict of complete, unchanging uh, perfection like in a courtroom, not guilty, righteous, in the legal standing before God, we have been declared right, not based upon our righteousness, but based upon the perfect righteousness of this Jesus that we've been united to. Because when we're united to him, we're standing on his perfect righteousness, and that's what the Father sees, and that's the basis of the verdict. Um, and our righteousness doesn't play a factor in that at all. None. And one, just one other thing, just to clarify the doctrine of justification. You're not, justifi you're not justified on the basis of your faith. That's not the ground of your justification. The ground of your justification is Christ's obedience. That's how the verdict is an unchanging declaration. Based, the Father says, based upon Christ's perfect obedience, you are declared perfectly obedient. That's the doctrine of justification by faith. And we're saying, yeah, and we will give an account for our sins somehow. But I thought our sins had been put away, right? That's the question. So that's why that distinction is helpful because the doctrine of justification gives you the title. How, what's the title for eternal life? The title is Christ's perfect righteousness and the declaration that you've been declared perfectly right on that ground, on him. That's your title. That's your right. And that never changes. It can't change or God's a liar. 
But then when we go to be glorified, not justified, when we go to be glorified, our works play a role in it in this sense. We walk the road of obedience. Someone who has been justified, Christ's work outside of you, purely legal, a declaration that doesn't change, that is gospel proper. That is just pure good news. Boom, righteous, verdict, doesn't change, offered to all. But then the gospel more largely considered is that God also promises to work inside you. And that's built upon that first promise. I've worked outside you and now I will work in you to change you. Right? It's not the other way around. I will work inside you to change you and then I will see that you're good and I will declare you righteous. No. You're united to Jesus in his perfect obedience. Therefore, you are perfectly righteous, legally. And here's my Holy Spirit. I will change you and create in you a new heart that loves the things of God and that longs to walk in his obedience, uh, walk according to his commandments and repent of your sins. So sanctification is one of the promises of the gospel, more largely considered. And if sanctification hasn't taken place, then the former benefit of the gospel, justification, hasn't taken place. Justification gives you a right to that life, and sanctification is the road you walk to possess that life. And so there must be some evidence on the last day that you are in Christ. That's, that's part of that according to works. You'll be judged according to works. So the question then is, how many good works are necessary to possess life? Not to have a right to it, because that's due to Christ, but to possess it. And the answer to that question is any. Any one. One good work. Any evidence at all proves that you're united to Jesus and that is how we possess life how we enter into the, the gates as it were Be, think of it like this someone accuses you in the courtroom let's say it's the devil I don't know if he will but let's say the devil accuses you and he's going to say some things and he'll use God's law and he'll say see he's done all these horrible things you, you said that if anyone does these things, they will burn in the lake of fire. And there are two answers to this. One, Christ has paid the penalty for these sins. Well, what proof is there that he's paid the penalty for those sins, for this person? Well, these works are the proof that this person has genuinely believed in that Jesus. This does not give you... This, hold on. This does not give you an inheritance. This does not give you the right to the inheritance. It merely proves to the court of heaven this saint has genuinely been united to Jesus. Okay, it's just proof. And this is part of how God does it. Okay? No, well, I'm sorry, what were you saying? Well, I mean, I don't know when that'll happen, but your name is written at the action of time before they the Lamb. Right. You were using the word proof, and I was just right. So, so yeah. So the proof, 
all it is is all this is is evidence it's some kind of receipt it's some kind of proof just manifesting our good works this is what our good works do it's just light it just reveals fruit it reveals to the world exactly what you just said my name has been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world God predestined me to be united to Jesus and the Holy Spirit came and dwelt within me, gave me faith, united me to Jesus, and has declared me right, filled me with his Holy Spirit and a desire to do good works. And I did good works. And this is proof, the good works are proof that I have been united to Jesus and was predestined to be united to Jesus. This is proof that my name belongs in the Lamb's Book of Life. Do you think it would be more accurate to say that this is more of a vindication of Christ than it is us? Hmm. And the reason I ask that is, <clears throat> we, we not only have Christ paying the penalty for our sins, but we also have his act of obedience imputed to us. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a matter of, and I'm just spitballing here, um, needing to point to a good work because we have all of Christ's good works mm -hmm. imputed to us. And so it's not even really a vindication of what's happened in our hearts. It's more of a the devil saying, oh, well, you said that you were going to make new creatures, but look, this creature's sinning. And so it's a vindication of Christ saying an unregenerated creature can't do anything good. Mm -hmm. Look at this. Yeah, I think it, you could say it's both. Yeah. This is a vindication, you put it this way. The, the, the judgment according to works is proof. Us being able to enter into glory, is we do that because there's proof that Christ has worked in us. So it's proof that we are genuinely united to him. And it's proof that he has changed us. It's proof of God's grace. I, I like that. Yeah. Anything else? Apologize for the lawnmower. We'll, we'll be glorified not because of our good works. Our good works do not cause or effect anything. Our good works, we will be judged not because of them, but according to them. That's the language of Scripture. Judged according to works. John Piper, think of accord. There's the faith, and it's connected to works. According to. The works just prove that something has happened, that God has worked in us. Those are good uh, thoughts. Anything else? Any other questions or anything? Well, you are to look forward to lay up and store for yourself things in heaven. In other words, you're not working because you're thinking, oh, I'm serious, I'm going to get a big house, blah, blah, blah. But it's brought up in that manner. You know, lay, think on these things and, and not thinking about storing down here more than you do storing up there. Mm -hmm. Because you will, there, I, I'm a daddy, I'm your father, and I'm going to reward you. There's that simplicity in that too. Yeah, and we when we're when Which we're <clears throat> as far as our own as far as our motivation goes. That's our only one. This is <clears throat> the the primary motivation. I would say in the Christian life is not I want to pass muster on the last day because you will. Yeah. The the motivation is that you will pass muster. 
because of Christ. The motivation is all of the promises of the gospel. The gospel more narrowly considered, you are unchangingly right with God in Christ. And Philippians 1.6, I began a good work in you and I will finish it. That's your motivation. Your, your, the motivation always, 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 always in the New Testament scriptures. When you see an imperative command, there's an indicative fact that motivates you to do the command. You must put off the old man and put on the new. Why? Because these things have happened to you. Because God is working in you. He's changing you. And he will complete what he started. So absolutely, as we're considering, we're considering the last judgment, we consider it because we want to sin less. We want to please our Father. And we want the conversation with our Lord Jesus, who shed his precious blood for us, to be less awkward. Because I love him, but not because I, I want to earn his love. He already loves me. And put the fear of God in there. Because mm -hmm. that's the basis of everything. And that's what comes next. Paragraph two. Uh, deals with the purposes of the day. God's purpose for appointing this day is to manifest the glory of his mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice and the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For at that time, the righteous will go into everlasting life and receive fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ will be thrown into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, his power. The so first, let's look at the manifestation of his, uh, of his glorious mercy and justice. So it will be manifest in the eternal salvation of the elect, it says. And it will be manifest in the eternal damnation of the reprobate. That is how God reveals his mercy and his justice. Romans 9 literally says that some human beings have been selected as vessels for mercy. And others have not been selected as vessels of mercy. They've been selected as vessels for wrath. And you call those reprobate. And this is based upon their own condition and their acts. It's their own, it's their own sinful natures and own sinful actions that condemn them. So because of who they are and what they've done, they will be damned and condemned. And then the confession moves to, to, to discuss the bestowal of blessings upon the elect. And it says they'll receive everlasting life. And I think it defines in the confession what that everlasting life is. Fullness of joy, glory, and then it says with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. And I think that the everlasting reward is the presence of the Lord. That might be how they're trying to word that. That's the reward. The presence of Christ. Um, <clears throat> so, let's turn to Matthew 25. We're just cutting it slightly close, but I 
This is really the last like major little thing, and I think we can get through it. Matthew 25. Okay. Look with me at verse 21. And this is the parable of the talents. Verse 21 says, His master said to him, Very done, <laughs> very done, well, good. And he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then look at verse 35. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. That's how the judgment according to works kind of looks. This is proof. This is what evidence looks like. You cared for those who were in need, for example. So th these verses show how these blessings are bestowed according to good works. But then, look at verses 31 through 34. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him, he will be, he will, uh, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for, for you. When was it prepared for them? Before they did the good works. From the foundation of the world. The good works are proof that the kingdom was prepared for them before the foundation of the world. So that, this just shows how it's all of grace. That, that election predestination is one of the foundations of the hope of the Christian. I think Calvin would have really pressed that, that predestination was one of the, is the foundation of our Christian hope. Then you have the punishment of the wicked that confession deals with. What is it? And it says to obey the gospel. And it's like, I, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought the gospel wasn't law. <laughs> I thought it was good news. So what does that mean? What does it mean to obey the gospel? The gospel, I kind of said this earlier, can be understood first in a more narrow and strict sense, just pure news. And that's what drives the Christian. And then it can also be understood as, you know, more largely you have legal promises outside the Christian and that news that actually that pure gospel is, is free for the whole world Christians need it and unbelievers need it everybody needs it and it's offered to everyone and if you're a sinner it's for you but then you have the gospel more largely considered and you could refer to this as the gospel as a covenant you have pure news. This is the good news of the gospel. Christ has come and his life, death, and burial resurrection was for sinners. And if you are a sinner, so, so that's good news. That Just what I just said. That's the gospel proper. And this is the gospel more largely considered. I'm about to add commands to the gospel. You ready? 
now believe it and repent of your sins. That's the gospel more largely considered. It's a command now. You must believe this. And you must repent of your sins. And wicked persons who are condemned don't obey the gospel in that sense. They don't believe it. Because when you believe the gospel, really, you're fulfilling the first commandment. You're obeying the first commandment, and that is to have no other gods and to trust in God alone and obey Him. And if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're disobeying God. If you don't believe the gospel, that is sin. So that's what I think that language means. And it says that they are cast into everlasting torments because of their failure to repent and believe. Look with me, we're already here. Look at verse 46. And, uh, well, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. We're not there. But I, I apologize, we don't have time. Please go consider Matthew 9, 42 through 48 um, later today when you have time or later this week. And I want you to think differently about this passage than, than you might already be thinking. If you already think this way, then great. But I think sometimes we tend to think of Matthew 9, cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye, as something that some Christians may have to do because their sins are so bad. Look, if you got to cut off your own hand to get into heaven, then do it. Because you don't want your sins to bar you from... No, I think this is just repentance language. Mark, did I say Matthew? Mark 9, 42 through 48. I think that Mark 9 is teaching language of putting off the old man, putting the flesh to death. And I recommend, first I'll just say this and then I'll recommend a book to you. I'll, I want to say that um, properly speaking, very technically, repentance flows from faith. Repentance follows faith, and faith precedes repentance as, as far as the work of the Holy Spirit in our life goes. And the book I recommend to you is a book named Repentance by John Cahoon. And his last name is actually spelled Calcahoon. And if you want to know how to spell it, I have one of his books right here. John Calcahoon. But it's actually Cahoon. It's one of the Marrow Men. And he wrote a book called Repentance and his argument was we are only moved by, to repent by apprehending Christ and his work by faith. And seeing Christ bleeding and dying on the cross raised for us moves us to turn from our sins and put off our sins. And if you want to consider that more closely, I do recommend you consider his work. And I think that is how we can understand Jesus' language to cut off hands and gouge out eyes. We repent because we come to Christ. And I wish I could get into that more with you, and I can't for time's sake, but we can talk about it later after church today if you'd like. If you don't do this, if you don't believe upon Christ, and thus you are not truly, Cahoon will talk about evangelical repentance. The difference between legal repentance and evangelical repentance. There's a difference between just cutting... If, like Piper said, if you just cut off your hand and gouge out your eye, you might be worse. It might make your sins worse. 
And for legal repenters, that is the case. They just become hardened hypocrites. Whitewashed tombs, Jesus said. What's evangelical repentance? That's repentance motivated by the gospel, by believing Christ. If you don't do that, you'll be cast out of the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Um, and it's either Mark 9 or it's 2 Thessalonians 1. Consider this language. from It's one of these two passages. I think it's Mark 9. It uses the word eternal punishment. If you don't believe the gospel, you're not just going to be annihilated and your soul and your body just disappear under God's wrath. No, it's eternal what? Punishing. You will be punished for eternity. It's not just destruction and death and you just you just don't exist anymore. No. The punishment, this is punitive language. The punishment will last forever. And let's just read this final paragraph and then we're done. We're done with the second London. Christ desires that we be firmly convinced that a day of judgment will come both to deter everyone from sin and to comfort the godly more fully in their adversity. So it's a comfort to us. The prom Judgment for the Christian should be comforting. Should be comforting because of the promise of Christ. All the promises of Christ that we believe. For this reason, he has determined to keep the day secret. So we don't really know when it is. To encourage people to shake off any fleshly security and always be watchful. So there is a sense that we should think of the hiddenness of the day and it should move us to be careful about our obedience. Why? Because they do not know the hour when the Lord will come so that they may be always ready to say, Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. And the confession ends how the scriptures end. Those are the last words of the Bible. And so... Um, I'll just say this, and if you have any questions, feel free. We all go through this life experiencing different forms of adversity and persecution and struggling with our own sins. Maybe even struggling with false guilt for various reasons. And we all deep down long for vindication. We long for it to be known that we are good and we are right. And we're not horrible, evil people. And the doctrine of the last judgment, when you link it to the gospel, this is hope for the Christian because there is promise in the gospel that one day, every wrong that has ever taken place in your life, it will be known. And if you want vindication for your own sins, if you want to be right and publicly understood as perfectly right, it is coming for you. You will be vindicated. And that's our hope. Our hope is that we will hear. If we are in Christ, we will hear. Well done. Good and faithful servant. And so when we're tempted to be despairing because of a fight or whatever, and we're persecuted or whatever, any adversity, part and parcel of the hope of the Christian is those promised words. Well done. That was Paul's hope at the end of his life. I have fought the faith. 
I mean, I've fought the fight. I've run the race. And Christ will say one day, yes, you did. Any other thoughts? Any questions or anything Anything at all? I'm go a minute over. It's the last one. Well, as I've been saying, it's been a tremendous joy. And uh, I'm thankful for your patience working through this. And uh, very hopeful for what we get to do next. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work outside of us and inside of us and all the promises of the gospel, even those that pertain to the last judgment. And I pray, Father, that you would, um, that your law would come down, crash upon our consciences so that we may be healed by trusting in Christ, fleeing to him, finding our hope and our rest and our peace in him and awaiting the day when he will say, well done. Lord, please bless this church and bless all the things that we've discussed together to our hearts and no matter um, where we go, where we end up or anything that ever happens to each and every one of us. May these truths that we've meditated upon um, truly change us from the inside out and move us um, to be um, the kinds of people that are the salt of the earth. In Jesus' name.